0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. So Binokibi ransomware looks more like the child of GandCrab, and McAfee has some thoughts on how ransomware-as-a-service operates – Fake updates are back and they're installing ransomware too. The AdWind rat is back and infesting a new set of targets. It's moved on from hospitality and retail and into the oil industry. Maliciously crafted ODT files are appearing in the wild. And a big database about Russian taxpayers has appeared in an unsecured Elasticsearch cluster. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. Today's news is for the most part from private sector researchers, those who are watching the criminal underworld. Researchers at the security firm McAfee, for one, have been keeping an eye on the Sodinokibi ransomware strain, the one that's also known as R-Evil, since this past April. They've just published an update of their studies. Their blog begins with some foreshadowing. They note darkly that Sodinokibi turned up at about the same time the Gandcrab hoods announced their retirement, saying they'd made enough money and proved to their satisfaction that anyone could easily find a profitable career doing evil. This prompts a reversal of the traditional question, why do bad things happen to good people? The really interesting question, if you follow Gandcrab, is why do good things happen to bad people? At any rate, Gandcrab announces their retirement and Sodinokibi turns up. So McAfee asks Coincidence, or is there more to the story? You see where this is going. McAfee unpacked Sodinokibi and found that it had a 40% code overlap with Gandcrab version 5.03. So they think there's a better than decent chance that this is just the return of the Gandcrab gang, back from a quick retirement, rested, refreshed, and ready to make money while serving evil. So Dinokibi is sold in the criminal-to-criminal market as an affiliate scheme. In its ransomware-as-a-service model, one group maintains the code which it licenses to the other criminals who use it against their victims. Both sides realize certain advantages from the arrangement. From the developer's point of view, they get a cut of the ransom, and they even get to set targets for their affiliates. The affiliates run a great deal more risk than the developer's especially if those developers work from one of several countries that don't really regard developing malware as a crime worth punishing, provided you leave targets in that country alone. The list of languages so Dinokibi checks for and blacklists is instructive. They're spoken in Russia and the near abroad, plus Iran and Syria. The affiliate gets a good deal too. They don't need to write the malware themselves. That learn-to-code stuff is for suckers as long as you've got someone coding for you. There are low barriers to entry. If you're willing to be a criminal and if you can be accepted as such in the right dark web markets, then Bob's your uncle and you can get down to shaking down hospitals, schools, small towns, anyone who needs their data but may not have thought through how to protect that data. When the affiliates do well, so do the developers. That's why Gancrab used to kick the non-performers out of its affiliate network. And it seems to be no accident that some of its top affiliates have moved over to Sodinokibi. McAfee's researchers say that Sodinokibi is generally well-prepared malware. Quality, albeit criminal work, it's a serious threat. The evidence linking it to GandCrab is circumstantial but interesting. And the main point is this. Ransomware is a criminal business being run like a business, and it has the characteristic vulnerabilities of its business model. Want to see an affiliate model fail? Make the top affiliates unprofitable, or outcompete them with free decryptors. These are private sector solutions. If you carry a badge and a gun, then we hope you'll make good collars. Ransomware is clearly more than a nuisance, and it's very far from being victimless. Computing reports, for example, that hospitals in both the U.S. and Australia have been forced to delay elective surgery and otherwise turn patients away because of infestations in their systems. They're working hard to deliver urgent care, but it's difficult when you're working through the resistant medium of maliciously encrypted files. The U.S. healthcare facilities being hit this week belong to the DCH health system in Alabama. The Australian victims are in Gippsland and southwest Victoria. If you've ever been sued or have had the occasion to sue someone, you know that part of the legal process is discovery. These days, much of that process is e-discovery— Dealing with all things electronic and online. Daniel Gary is co founder of Law and Forensics, a global legal engineering firm, and he's editor in chief of the Journal of Law and Cyber Warfare. He shares his insights on e discovery
1: litigation often ensues around a breach or around all sorts of things right firing employees it depends how senior you are there's all sorts of complicated issues that come up that involve lawyers it's about the discovery of the responsive information relevant to that incident now sometimes discovery can also involve third parties so a lot of vendors that collect logs or have cloud-based services or whatever will get third-party subpoenas in connection with discovery involving another case like for example, they may want the endpoint log files that are hosted by a third party. The part involved in the data breach, one of the lawyers will may have to subpoena that company, and there'll be discovery. So it's the process of getting information as it's connected to a dispute. Now, there's also discovery in arbitration. There's also discovery in Government investigations, um, and certainly in criminal cases as well, those tend to be a little more draconian and arcane sometimes, hmm. or one way or we're, you know better or worse depending on the regulator. And then you have state court litig, and I was just referring to federal court litigation earlier. State court litigation with state court judges is sort of I don't want to say the wild west, but it varies um, based on the knowledge and understanding of a judge, and it's about going before a court and saying, look, we need this information to argue our case. It gets inherently more complicated because judges are generalists and they're not, you know, the wazirs of ones and zeros, so to speak. They hear Mm. murder cases, divorce cases, criminal cases, white collar crime, contract disputes and everything else. When people come before them and say, oh, we want all of the email server, you know, it could be virtualized in the cloud and the judge will be like, I don't know what any of that means. And so articulating what's reasonable to get that information back and forth to sort of discovery. So when
0: things go wrong when it comes to discovery, what are the, the things that you typically find yourself up against?
1: Um, It ranges, but usually it can be very, you know, from helping the parties, you know, for example, there was a case involving Amazon and uh, several different cloud-based service technology providers and a case called CDS versus Rapid Systems in New York in the Southern District, where I was tasked with basically creating a set of protocols and constructs so parties could have co-equal access to a cloud-based platform as they proceeded to litigation. Fairly complicated because of virtualized private cloud and the court had no idea what the parties were fighting about or how to grant so this type of thing. So I got appointed by the courts um, in federal court to create as a technical special master to resolve all the issues and create a set of protocols so the parties could functionally operate and update the product and release the product. They had different customers and different you know instances of the cloud but the same source code base. and So stuff like that. And then we have like small versus UMC where the court, you know, appoints me with a sort of mandate of resolving, you know, a wide range of e-discovery issues. And as I said in the beginning, it's about finding the right information and it ranges from parties and lawyers don't know how to properly extract or collect the information to the vendors they hire don't do the right work to you know, just outright perjury and lying by parties about what they did or didn't do. I often tell people, you know, I'm very fortunate because ones and zeros frequently don't lie. You know, there's inevitably issues.
0: That's attorney Daniel Gary. He's one of the featured speakers at the upcoming six annual Cyber Warfare Symposium. That's October 17th in New York City. It's sponsored by the Journal of Law and Cyber Warfare. Netscope has been following the spread of the AdWind RAT and warns that the remote-access Trojan is now being used against a different sector. AdWind has hitherto been observed in use mostly against retail and hospitality targets. It's now in active use against the U.S. oil industry. The RAT's functionality includes capturing webcam images, scanning for files based on specific extensions, performing injection into known legitimate Windows processes, monitoring system status and exfiltrating data to its command and control server. The current versions of AdWind seem to be showing improved obfuscation capabilities as well. Cisco's Talos Group finds that criminals are looking into the possibility of using maliciously crafted ODT files in an attempt to bypass detection by commonly used security programs. The current campaign is still small, but it's used ODT files to distribute revenge Rat and NJRat payloads. OpenOffice and LibreOffice users take note. And finally, Comparatech reports finding personal information on some 20 million Russian taxpayers exposed online in an unprotected Elasticsearch cluster hosted on an Amazon cloud. The exposed data include basically the whole shebang names, addresses, passports, tax IDs, and so on. Here's a question for the tax man. In a country whose internet policy is as self-sufficient as Russia's has become, what are income tax data doing on Amazon? Maybe the owner of the data could shed some light on this. Unfortunately, Comparatech hasn't been able to find that person or organization. But they seem to be somewhere in Ukraine, so maybe this owner owns the data kind of on the side. So you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash Cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash Cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's the Program Director for Public Policy and External Affairs at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, We had word come by that uh, the city of Huntington Park in California has a new addition to their police force. What's going on here?
2: So uh, the Huntington Park Police Department announced this past June the addition of a robot police officer, or as they call it, a, a HP RoboCop. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a 400-pound security robot. It, it roams through the streets of the city of uh, Huntington Park. And to just to try and create an image for people, to me it looks like a, a uh, the offspring of Eve from the Wally e movie, uh, R2-D2, and maybe a little bit of the cone heads in there, just the, the <laughs> shape of the head. Yeah, uh, it it looks rather silly. Something that seems uh, like it would be in a really bad science fiction movie. It's not um, intimidating. That's that's for sure. It does not sure. seem and intimidating. It may that,
0: maybe it's not supposed to be.
2: I feel like I would just laugh if I saw a RoboCop. Um, but then okay. when you dig into the details, it becomes not as much of a laughing matter. Mm. Part of it is based on the surveillance capabilities of this robot. So the company that produced it says that this robot is quote a fully autonomous security data machine meaning they uh basically observe everything around them take real-time photos and videos uh, and are just constantly collecting data on on what they see Mm -hmm. Um, and the purpose of that from the city's perspective is to fill in blind spots so if you can't have law enforcement at all locations at all times and you can not have traditional surveillance techniques like plain old security cameras You can have these robots uh, going around corners and into alleyways where there might not be persistent uh, surveillance. What was particularly disturbing to me is the company uh, trying to describe why this particular robot wouldn't generate false positives. In other words, identify people as security threats when they are not actually security threats. Mm -hmm. And the answer was something like, well, RoboCop has the power to distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys. They'll know, you know, what makes a criminal, and
0: uh, <laughs> I know it when I see it. <laughs> I know it when I see it, um, and
2: they can place, you know, once they determine that someone's a bad guy, they can put the uh, that person's face through their facial recognition software. They can red flag that person, um, they can collect IP addresses, they can identify uh, that person's smartphone if it's in a particular uh, geographical range. So this is, you know, pretty disturbing in that. Oftentimes, AI uh, is extremely biased, as we've seen in all Mm -hmm. sorts of uh, previous studies. In terms of legal recourse, I mean, we have this public view doctrine, which means if you are out in public and a member of law enforcement observes you doing something, you have no uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. That's fair game uh, for a a prosecutor to use in a criminal court case. Right. We've talked a lot on this podcast, Dave, about applying that doctrine to all sorts of modern technology. So license plate readers, um, aerial surveillance. When you start to talk about you know, these RoboCops, it's it's so far beyond the traditional understanding of the public view doctrine because we're just expanding the universe of what can be seen uh, in public view to such an uh, absurd degree. I don't think a, a court... At this point would accept the argument that the public view doctrine shouldn't apply when we're dealing with these Robocops or other extremely persistent forms of surveillance but I think it's something in the long term they're gonna have to uh, consider
0: well how is this different from say uh, a security camera on a telephone pole up in, in the corner of the public park uh, versus uh, this being that that can just move around. It, it's a it's a camera that can move from pl- place to place, uh, and its very presence uh, improves the security because it's a it's an active reminder to folks that safety is a priority Ro- here in our RoboCop public space. is on the beat. Yeah, uh, <laughs> control yourself, people. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, with a security camera, there's generally a level of notice, so people. Can see the cameras, they'll realize that they're they're under surveillance. I assume if you see one of these guys, these Robocops going through the park, uh perhaps you'll adjust your behavior as well. But um, you know, I think the the other big difference is the area that can be covered. You can put up a million different security cameras, and they're going to be little nooks and crannies within a jurisdiction that aren't going to be subject to their coverage. And when you have Robocops on wheels, They're going to be able to go into back alleys and uh, obscure areas of public parks where uh, security cameras would not be able to reach. So the surveillance is more persistent. Hmm. Uh, And then also the the smart uh, elements of this particular surveillance uh, tool. So the ability to uh, take in more information than simply a video or a photo, to do real-time analysis, uh, to do profiling... Those are also types of things that don't exist in traditional uh, video surveillance. Hmm.
0: Well, and for anybody who is uh, familiar with the original RoboCop movie, please put down your weapon. You have five seconds to comply. Exactly. Exactly. I never thought RoboCop would come to life in in
2: this capacity, (laughs) although RoboCop the movie would have been far less interesting if the
0: RoboCop looked like this little guy, who uh,
2: (laughs) just does not seem super intimidating
0: to me. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll see how this one plays out. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security, And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.